0: All right, this is, the, um, this is the official good evening. So good evening. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Um, I can tell already the buzz, the conversation. Uh, you are the right people in the right place at the right time around the right issue. So I, I really want to welcome you uh, to the chapel. Quick show of hands, how many are here for the first time? Wow, take a look around those who have been here before. Keep your hands up for just a second. Take a look because part of what we really like to do is build community. And part of it is to see who's here for the first time. So for those of us who have been here many times, we really want to do that personal welcome. And after the program this evening, we'll have a reception on the uh, plaza Uh, really which helps us keep the conversation going and a good opportunity to meet somebody who you may not have met before, because that's so important uh, just to our own growth, but also to the health and wellness of our community and the fabric of the community that we call uh, Greater Houston. Um, With that, I want to tell you just a little bit about the concept of the Divine Series. We started this um, new series, and we've committed to do it for two years, and we're coming to the close of the first year. And the idea behind the series was really to have a forum, a place where people could come and tell their stories as it relates to their interaction and intersection with this concept that has a lot of different facets to it called the divine, however you might understand that. And how has that concept or that that dynamic uh, impacted your life and how has that also impacted your kind of public vocational choices. I think that's so important. And we have been so fortunate this year. We started off with Dr. Brené Brown, who's very well known here in Houston from the University of Houston. We had a wonderful interfaith conversation right at the end of the year with uh, retired Archbishop uh, Joseph Fiorenza, Rabbi Karf, who is longtime uh, head rabbi at uh, Congregation in Beth Israel. We were gonna have Reverend Bill Lawson, but he had surgery, but his daughter, uh, Melanie, uh, who many of you all know, came right in and not only had the the moderator role, not only did she channel her father, but also gave her own take on uh, life in this city and the impact that working and being around um, a, a Jewish leader and a Catholic leader really had on her life. So that was around social justice. Then in uh, the the last one we did were the Barnstones. Uh, Howard, uh, we had uh, Willis Barnstone, Olicki, and Tony, and they are a family of poets, English professors, and some of you all may know Howard Barnstone was one of the architects that helped design the chapel, but it was a very interesting evening of exploring the concept of the divine, of sacredness, of, of life, big questions, through poetry, and it was was an amazing conversation of how does that medium open up possibilities for exploring something that's very deep and very personal in a very different kind of spoken word way. So then, we're here tonight, and it's really my uh, pleasure uh, to introduce uh, tonight's program, Feminist Perspectives of the Divine in Islam. And um, as part of that, it's an honor to introduce to you, present to you, Ozma Udin, who is the director of strategy for the Center on Islam and Religious Freedom. She's also the founder and editor-in-chief of um, AltMuslima.com, a highly praised web magazine dedicated to issues on gender and Islam. Uh, she speaks, she publishes, she travels, she talks, she energizes, gets people really engaged around issues of religious freedom as well as gender and faith, and we really thought that she would be a very, very uh, timely um, and interesting speaker to bring an issue, feminism, in one's own tradition that really is an issue that cuts across all traditions, not only religious, academics, politics, family, but to think about feminism, and in this case Islam, and the unique challenges and opportunities and things that are happening there. And then, our moderator is um, here from town, Nabila um, Mansour, who works with Emerge USA, a civic organization helping minority communities become politically active. Uh, she is involved with the Asian American Democrats of Texas, is on the board of Everest Academy, a Muslim school in Southwest area. Um, I have a privilege of serving her with her on a new organization that's starting to form her movement here Uh, the Houston, uh, what are we calling it, Coalitions Against Hate, Uh, that an effort to have another voice, another gathering point to say, what do we, and this is where I think a negative is appropriate, what do we not want this community to be driven by? And the positive is, what do we want it to be driven by? And I think if you look around tonight, this is what we want it to be driven by. And we do know these kind of efforts, whether they're in Washington, D.C., they're in rural communities, they're in major urban areas, oftentimes are that bulwark against behavior that is not acceptable. And as we were talking at dinner tonight, that unfortunately seems to be uh, opened again for business. That somehow it's okay to denigrate your neighbor. It's okay to um, slam a reporter. It's okay to do certain things. And it's just amazing. We were talking about how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, part of that is the human condition but the other part of it is what we're trying to do and what these women are doing in their work and their professional life and their vocation to make sure that there is a counterpoint in something that's not only pushing back, but creating another way of being and living together. So I wanna welcome both of you here to the chapel. We're just honored to have you, honored to have you at this time in history. Um, What the the formats um, in your program, we will have uh, opportunity here from Ozma There'll be some conversation between the two, our moderator, and then it'll be open to you, the community, and then again, reception. The last word I want to say tonight is we are really fortunate to have American Sign Language Interpretation for this evening uh, provided by Mahin Ansari and Brittany Best. Um, and I just want to say thank you all for being here. Um, They are both alumni of the University of Houston's American Sign Language uh, Interpreting Program, so we are just uh, honored to have you and thank you so much. Um, The mic is yours, Osmond. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. Thank
1: you, David. Is this working? Thank you, David, and to the Rothko Chapel for having me here today. And thank you to everyone here for coming out tonight. As David was mentioning when he was introducing me, there's a couple of different prongs of the work that I do. On the one hand, I'm a lawyer specializing in religious liberty. I worked for over seven years at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is a nonprofit law firm based in DC, defending the free religious practice of people of all traditions, which means we've had clients everywhere. So we say A to Z, the Amish to Zoroastrians. I've had cases dealing with, and this is going to make me immediately unpopular among some, we are the ones representing Hobby Lobby at the US Supreme Court. But we also represented Gregory Holt, a Muslim prisoner at the Supreme Court who won 9-0 because he wanted the right to grow his beard in accordance with his faith and the, and the prison system wasn't permitting it. And even totally outside the, uh, the mainstream, we actually also represented a Santeran who wanted the right to be able to sacrifice his goat in his backyard. And so after seven years as at the Beckett Fund, um, last year I started a, a new nonprofit and I'm now there full time. It's called the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom. And what SURF does, so SURF is a, the acronym, um, what SURF does is it focuses on, on the protection of religious liberty for people of all faiths, but finds support for that within Islamic scripture. So believe it or not, there's so much there that in Sharia and in Islamic law and politics and, and discourse, that actually provides a robust defense of liberty. So that's one prong of it, and the other part is that we also work on secular law issues as well, showing that we as Muslim American attorneys and policy workers want to defend the religious freedom of people of all faiths. And what's really important about the work that we've done, that I've done at the Beckett Fund and at SERF, is this idea that that all people, all believers of any faith, should be able to engage in inquiry free from government coercion. It's something that we sometimes take for granted here in the US, but it's all too common an issue abroad, in places like Pakistan and Indonesia, and even in Europe, where what you say can get you slapped with heavy fines or even imprisonment or the death penalty. And that free ability to to be able to engage in religious discourse and to ask questions and to delve into our faith, even when it's unpopular and controversial, is ultimately the thing in the US that made it possible for me to start altmuslima.com, which now, by the way, goes by the name Alt-M, um, because alt muslim is quite mouthful. So Alt-M is a web magazine wholly dedicated to stories and commentary on gender in Islam from the male and female, Muslim and non-Muslim perspectives. One aspect of it is inter-community, where we deal with all these complex gender issues within the community, those, those co-ed power dynamics, those expectations of, of particular gender roles, uh, all those things that make th- th- sometimes th- quite difficult uh, to be a Muslim woman uh, in this community, and we'll get into that tonight. And then there's the inter-community part, because one thing I noticed when I f- before I started Alt-Muslima and since I've started it, is that so much of the conversation and the misunderstandings that other people outside our community have about our faith are often linked to gender. I mean, these days the big question is extremism, and even extremism is, is a bit of a gendered discourse, um, these days and the ways that Muslim women factor into it. Uh, but for a long time, the, the major issue is gender. Like the, all these like stereotypes, sensationalist stereotypes in people's minds of the Muslim community and of Islam ultimately tie back to something like harems or honor killings or the Taliban beating a woman in a, in a face covering. And so these were the things that I thought that if we we were able to create a platform that showed that the American Muslim community, and in particular, the American Muslim women are so, I mean, according to to surveys and and to polls, to Gallup, for instance, Gallup found that in the United States, American Muslim women are second only to Jewish women in the level of educational and professional accomplishments. And these are the people that I'm constantly surrounded by. And so I thought, here, let's create a platform where we can begin to discuss and delve into our own issues, but in the process also show to anyone who comes to this public website that it's not quite black and white, and that our community is composed of a lot of really critical thinking and a lot of really accomplished both Muslim men and women. So we counter these stereotypes by featuring the voices of Muslim women, and the conversation itself reflects the independence, assertiveness, and strength of these women. What better way to debunk stereotypes? Tonight, we'll talk about a number of the issues discussed and debated on Alt-M. But first, I want to start with my own story. Here's a short excerpt from a personal essay I wrote several years ago. In the Qur'an, God admonishes us to reflect. Sometimes, reflection brings anguish. It can take us through complex mazes we never really escape until we are ready to move beyond the maze to a greater challenge. My simultaneous encounter with Muslim extremism and a feminist realization of self is one of the more philosophical mazes I have encountered. I spent my youth enchanted by a relatively warm and fuzzy Islam. In middle school, my enthusiasm and love for my religion made me an unintentional proselytizer. By high school, I was studying comparative religion. When the news vilified Islam, I defended it passionately, writing manifestos against the manipulative media representations of Islam. I eventually recognized this concept of Islam was naive. Moving past it required a lot of tumultuous soul-searching. The journey began when I entered college, where I was assaulted by Muslim extremism. Countless pamphlets extolling the virtues of simplistic Wahhabi thinking floated around the university campus. Books outlining this ideology were stacked up in the prayer room, and the fiery the Friday sermons emb- embodied the intense anger behind the- those words. Some of these books were written for women by men, purporting to discuss Islam's mandates on various women's issues. The book spoke of women only in terms of subjugation. My innocence was ravaged by the description of women as sex slaves, house servants, satanic temptations, and moral, physical, and intellectual <clears throat> inferiors. The books claimed Islam required these roles for women and that any resistance to this destiny was a sign of impiety, ensuring those women were headed to an indescribably horrid hell. As I read these books, my identity as a woman was, for the first time, clashing with my Muslim identity. It occurred to me that what I wanted as a woman may not fit with what I wanted as a Muslim. The more I researched the matter, the worse the dilemma became. Islam detractors come in many forms, with some more purposefully destructive than others, When I googled Islam plus women, I stumbled across endless scores of Islamic texts quoted out of context, mistranslated, or citing weak Hadith, or oral traditions related to the words and the deeds of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The websites argue that these mangled quotes constituted Islam's view of women. At the time, I believed them. After all, they were quoting prophetic traditions and other religious texts. How could they be anything but Islamic? The practical effects of this turmoil were many. Representative of them was my struggle with the hijab, which I had always told myself I would start wearing when I began college, a promise to which I stayed true. It was unfortunate that my adoption of the hijab coincided with my naivete being shattered by extremist rhetoric. The pride I felt when I wore it was often penetrated by the fact that there were other Muslim women who were being forced to wear it to satisfy some male's whim. For those women, hijab was not a symbol of independence and liberation, but precisely the opposite. It held them down, suppressed their individuality, and made them compliant to another's will. And these women were not just abstract figures described in a textbook. I ran into them frequently around school and at social gatherings where they were almost uniformly timid, slinking back from attention. I knew it was a logical fallacy to equate oppression with hijab. Once I adopted, it, once I adopted the hijab, I wore it for many years, and in subsequent years I have met hundreds of incredibly inspirational strong women in hijab. But at that fragile point in my spiritual growth, observing what was around me, I couldn't help but increasingly come to fear my wearing the hijab helped legitimize its use as a tool of subjugation. Even worse than the male imposition of the hijab was what I call the hijab cult, developed by Muslim women in the community. This group ostracized women who didn't wear hijab, making them feel like lesser Muslims, somehow weaker in their faith than those who wore it. Even though members of this cult were backbiting or constantly judging others' actions according to their personal rubric of proper Islam, they were still elevated as a symbol for all of those quote-unquote immodest women to emulate. The hypocrisy was stifling. <clears throat> Associating the hijab with harshness, I found my relationship with God was becoming primarily based on fear, rather than being properly balanced between love and fear. I worried incessantly about being judged by him, and it sometimes felt like his disapproval was manifesting itself in the anger I sense within my community. Looking back, I see my plight as a necessary struggle. We all have important causes to which we are innately drawn. My cause has always been twofold, women's equality and Islam. For the world to make sense to me, women and men had to be of equal worth and dignity, just as Islam had to be the true religion. Before I encountered the extremist interpretation of Islam, my world seemed wonderfully whole. Afterwards, my world became fragmented. To glue it back together, I had to reconcile sex equality and Islamic piety. It took years for me to achieve any semblance of peace, which came largely through long periods of observation and contemplation of what I later discovered to be God's signs. He was initiating dialogue, and through time, I came to embrace that interaction. As I continued to read, I encountered a wide variety of books about spiritual purification and other issues beyond extremist rhetoric. I questioned the reasons behind my feminist bent. Following hours of meditation and eventually greater (laughs) self-realization, I learned to better distinguish between the environmental and instinctual sources of my ethics. And more importantly, I discovered an Islam that was welcoming, similar to my high school Islam, but far richer and more complex than any Islam I had before encountered. For me, the intricacies of Islamic legal interpretation, the depth of Islamic spirituality, and the breadth of Islam's acceptance of variable practices forever disproved the extremist version. Whereas before, I had always feared subjectivity and variability in religion, mistaking these characteristics as somehow being antithetical to absolute truth, What I learned from my studies of Islamic law and legal interpretation is that subjectivity actually underscores religious authenticity. If Islam, aside from its essential core, is about interpretational diversity, allowing room for people's cultures and personalities to determine what is religiously right or possible for them, then there is a greater likelihood that Islam is a true religion. After all, truth must be accessible to all, and universal accessibility is impossible, with black and white interpretations that place most of the world outside the parameters of quote-unquote proper Islam. And it was precisely this that I learned of my religion. Islam is, at its core, a religion of descent. It is not premised on an endless list of do's and don'ts, but is instead multifarious and openly accepting of diversity. One of the bases of this diversity is culture. As Dr. Omar Abdullah explains in his article, Islam and the Cultural Imperative, Islam spread throughout the world by adopting the culture the people is sought to convert. Muslims do not brand these cultures foreign and invalidate them in the name of Islam. Instead, they incorporated everything except those ideas that clearly contradicted Islamic principles, and used those elements to make Islam acceptable and, eventually, indispensable to the people. Islam spread when Muslims stayed true to all the Qur'an's fundamental principles, including its message of acceptance. It was precisely this message that helped heal the rupture between my identities as a woman and a a Muslim. My understanding of Islam continues to evolve, but has finally found a solid foundation. As a woman and an American, I have certain values and inclinations that are, at the core, moral. And I had finally encountered an Islam that embraced this core and encouraged me to use it to do good things for myself and others. In realizing these actions would draw me closer to God, I obliterated yet another barrier between him and me. It was a momentous victory. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Asma. That was a very moving piece. Um, it was in Tikken Magazine, and I had read it before we had a chance to meet. And part of me was kind of a little scared. I was like, Asma, don't tell people this. This is our little secret. We're not supposed to let other people know. But I think it is important that we're having these conversations. And I want to thank David and Rothko Chapel for allowing us to come and speak about a very important topic. Um, you talked about your, the warm and fuzzy Islam that you grew up with. And then you talked about some of the extremism that you encountered when you got to college campus. Can you share with us a little bit more about um, this journey that you took and how your concept of the divine changed as you experienced this extremism on campus? And especially something, maybe a little bit about why you took your hijab off and what made
1: you kind of do that and, and what was the reaction of those around you? Sure. I mean, I think when I talk about the warm and fuzzy Islam, I'm talking about Islam that's entirely wrapped up in the love component. I talked about this negotiation, or this balance between fear and love. And I think that was the course, part of it that I was, I was obviously completely enmeshed in. And then to come, and, and, and almost in a way that I didn't realize there was any other way of looking at Islam or religion generally. I was a bit naive. I mean, I'm fully aware of religiously inspired wars and so on. <laughs> but in the context of, you know, my experience of Islam, it was, it was always entirely positive. And so when I came onto this campus and I saw these, uh, so it was largely in the form of foreign students. Um, I was born and raised in Miami. I went to University of Miami as an undergrad, and University of Miami, maybe because of the weather, um, tends to (laughs) attract a lot of Arab men from uh, from the Gulf specifically, (laughs) even more specifically, Saudi men uh, tend to fill up uh, the classrooms at the engineering school, and so it's these. It was these students that were on campus um, and that were responsible for actually um, having a completely separate Muslim student organization. There was the Islamic Society at UM, which com- was composed of American Muslims, uh, of which women, including women who didn't wear a headscarf, were able to lead. And then there was an entire other Muslim uh, student association that consisted entirely of Arab men. Um, and if women were to come, they were to speak from behind uh, from behind a curtain, believe it or not. And if we saw these people on campus, and I tried to say salaam, I didn't receive a response. And it was these men, and then and through its various interactions, the women and their family and, the, and the, that they were related to, that ultimately kind of initiated this. Um, and I might not look this old, but actually when I was in college, that's when 9-11 happened. And if that was, if it was anything that was going to sort of crystallize this... this spiritual crisis, that was going to be it. Because now it was not only what was happening on campus or even at these various social community um, events that I went to that I was observing as sort of a bewildered college student. But now all of a sudden this conversation was happening at this sort of national and almost global scale where I would, all, I could, all I ever heard was that Islam oppressed women and that's why we were invading Afghanistan, for instance. Um, and so that's really what kind of like led to sort of this, this culmination of what I would Ultimately, consider a spiritual crisis.
2: Um, so I had a very similar experience to that. Um, went to school, had all these um, kind of Islam light growing up, and then you're you're kind of confronted with this very different kind of Islam. And what that did for me was it turned me off. Right? Like it turned me off because it was this is not the Islam that I want to practice that differentiates between genders so much. Um, in that sense that's when I was kind of introduced to this philosophy of feminism, right? So what, is, what does it mean to be a feminist in
1: Islam? So, I mean, ultimately, the, the understanding that I came to, other uh, sort of the, the way I kind of came out of my, my crisis, is this moment where I just sort of sat down, put away all the books and all the internet, like everything on the internet that I've been reading. Um, and since then, by the way, I've learned to do more sophisticated internet searches. <laughs> um, but at the time, I was limited to Islam plus gender. Um And you know, I just put it away, and I was like, let me just contemplate like what is what is my religion and what is you know my my, my faith, my relationship with God outside the scope of all this incessant social commentary. and I think everybody here who is an American Muslim and anybody even those who are not can imagine that that it's literally nonstop for those of us who are trying to really kind of figure out our religion to live it, but so often we're not able to just be in sort of focused on Islam as a religion, but we're forced into this political role. We have to be a spokesman, whether or not we want to or not. Um, and so, you know, when I put that away and I was able to, and I think that was, again, one of sort of God's um, interventions in my life, I just came, it just became so obvious, so crystal clear to me that there's this concept of fitra, right, the original disposition, um, that the humans are given, that we're sort of where we come from. You know, in Islam, we believe that we um, are all born with a blank slate. And I just thought that 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 original disposition, that concept of the original disposition is that just God could not have created me as anything but equal in dignity and worth to men. And interestingly, I mean, that was just me in my unlearned sort of contemplation. But later on, I saw those exact words um, written by Dr. Ingrid Mattson, for instance, when she was writing uh, on a separate controversy that happened in the community uh, related to women-led prayers. And so it was just an incredible confirmation for me years later to see Dr. Madsen saying exactly what I had come to uh, independently. Does that answer your
2: question? Um, it does. Um, the only thing I, I would say is that maybe you could speak to a little bit about um, feminism and, and kind of the lived reality of Muslims right now. So. Growing up, I kind of identified myself as a feminist, and I saw that this was the movement that I kind of, um, I was leaning toward. But it's not. I, I never frame myself as a feminist in mainstream community masjids mm-hmm. or mosques, because it's almost a dirty word, and it's a dirty word because there are certain connotations that have been attached to the word feminism. And so when I talk about feminism, I don't use I don't use the F word. I, what I use is I frame it in um, access to equal rights, right? So I use it to access to equal prayer space, access to uh, equal, a, a legitimate role in leadership, um, access to economic equality so that every person has the right to um, have equal wages and have good childcare for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never use the word feminism. Is it something that you've encountered? Because I find that when I do, people pull back automatically. And sometimes I think that we need to meet our community where it's at, not opposed to where I think it should be. <laughs> so have right. you found that in your encounters?
1: Yeah, I have. And on the question of like meeting people where they are, that's definitely the overall philosophy at Al Muslim, even though it might seem like it at times. I, I think it's a constant or sort tug of war between kind of Helping to expand the scope of what's acceptable to the community slowly, as opposed to being more radical. And I think that's something that a lot of people, especially Muslim women in this space, struggling with these issues, um, sort of you know they sort of contend with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like you know feminism being a bad word, I definitely get that. We're often regularly trolled on Twitter, for instance, by other members of the community who think that anything and everything that we put on alt Muslima, because it is pushing certain boundaries, is somehow you know it's somehow sort of adopting a liberal philosophy or a Western philosophy that's antithetical to Islam. um, And that we're trying to insert something that's not only foreign, but ultimately that's going to destroy Islam. I mean, that's what I hear um, on social media constantly. Um, Whereas what they fail to understand is that it is absolutely possible that you can be completely devout in even the most traditional of ways in your religion and still have this desire to see broader rights and broader equality. Um, I mean there's like certain, I mean the Quran makes very clear throughout that men and women are, as I came to the conclusion, equal in dignity and worth, their the rights to education and the worth of their, their religious worship is absolutely equal. Um, and then the parts of it that we deal with that, we, that are more controversial, the, the issues of like actual lived realities and economic transactions, those are the aspects of the Quran that I that sort of introduce elements of inequality, but are very much and very obviously tied to very specific socioeconomic circumstances. And so, something that I, you know, one thing at AltMuslima that we are very focused on is this idea that the people at AltMuslima, because before I started the website in 2009, if you want to talk about gender rights in Islam, you basically, or gender in Islam, you basically had two options on the internet, and by extension in our community. Either you had groups or internet sites that were very much to the left, that you know were very casual and comfortable and kind of throwing tradition and Islamic law to the side and making certain pronouncements of what equality and morality entailed and required. Um, And then on the flip side, there was just sites that dealt with gender and Islam from a very legalistic perspectives, like let's ask a question and then you get an answer from a scholar and it was all fic related, sort of legal jurisprudence related. But there was nowhere, believe it or not, I mean, the internet has evolved so much, but in 2009 when I started this, there was no middle space, as far as I know and as far as any of my friends knew, where actual critical conversations were happening, not by people who either didn't have any questions and, and were perfectly comfortable and weren't dealing with those you know, struggles in real life, or the people who had just kind of threw Islam to the side. And this was a space where it was we are devout, we're very much tied to our religion, and we're trying our hardest to, keep a, so to hold firmly to the rope of Allah, and, but to also to be able to, to, to incorporate and to satisfy the, the needs within us when it came to these questions of gender equality, like why, you know, why does Islam say this, and is there a better way? Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in Islam, but also in our broader community and how we as Muslims can help further those, those, those issues.
2: Um, so that segues into the next question. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this phenomena that's going with, on within um, Muslim circles. And this is the phenomena of going unmosked. This idea that traditional places of worship are not offering adequate spiritual nourishment to their members, right? So what you have is you have this entire cohort of um, lost young people that no longer identify with the mosque as their primary place of worship. And they're going to third spaces to find that. And in some way, I would argue maybe alt muslima is that, where you, these mm-hmm. discussions are happening <clears throat> online. But there, needs to be a, a, there has to be a space for these, peop- these young people that are looking for that spiritual guidance here in our own local communities all across America. How do, how, what should mosques do to kind of recapture that
1: lost cohort of Muslims that have tried to like find those third spaces? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think first to comment on your point about Muslim, I mean, absolutely. I think in the absence of actual sort of like the um, adequacy of the, the traditional spaces, the online community has definitely become the alternative, the alternative mosque um and it's a place where people do feel very free to engage openly and critically um, without feeling that they're going to be judged on the basis of that although there's plenty of controversies on the muslim internet as well as where where people are judged on the basis of their views um, in rather harsh ways um but in terms of like what's you know how to pull these people back to the mosque i mean i think you go back to the root of what's causing them to leave and i think if you're going to think of muslim women specifically but also Muslim men who are troubled by questions of gender equality. I mean, mm-hmm. I've heard stories of Muslim men leaving the faith because they just can't accept what they're seeing in terms of the treatment of women. Um, and it's something that they're struggling with as well. Um, you know, the, there's two sort of major areas when you think of, you know, Muslim women and, and these men. Um, A, they, they feel that they're, they're not welcome and there's plenty Plenty, just simply, even in the physical setup of mosques and the physical appearance of mosques, that sends that message. You know, there's an entire Tumblr blog called Side Entrance started by can
2: a friend tell, of mine. Can you tell people a little bit about what a traditional mosque looks like and 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 what is what so is? So a it?
1: mosque in the U. S. Yeah. right? because I mean, what a mosque looks like is very different in, mm-hmm. across the world. In Pakistan, there isn't even generally a women's section of the mosque. Um, but in, yeah, other places there's amazing. You know. Uh, Facilities for women, and there's places like China, and even now in the U.S. where you have examples of mosques that are only for women. Uh, but the traditional, you know, sort of standard or default in the U.S. is a, a situation where a mosque is uh, genders are segregated, as is re- largely thought to be required by by law, by the Islamic law. Um, but they're separated but unequal, and so the women's section is often, as I was mentioning, a Tumblr blog started by. A friend of mine, Hinmaki, um, she started a Tumblr blog called Side Entrance, and it was, it, it was a place where people can document uh, the best and the worst, and, it was, and the side entrance refers to that back door by the trash can that leads you to the women's section. That section of the mosque, that tends to be the most dilapidated um, and unkempt, and that's the section that's reserved for women and for children. Right. And so now, you know, often, I mean, I've been in those spaces. Uh, relegated to the basement of a mosque because I had a child who was disrupting the prayer or potentially could, and then the speaker system's not working, so now I'm ineffectively cut off from even praying. Um, and so you're in the space, you usually don't have visual uh, contact you know, with the, the, the imam and the main congregation. So you're just like physically cut off, you're visually cut off, and then top of it all, you're surrounded by a rather l- dirty, messy, noisy space. And all this does is send the message to women that your spirituality doesn't matter. Your spiritual development is not, not maybe there's a two versions of it, either it doesn't matter or it doesn't matter as much as the men's does. So they get to have a nice quiet space, free from all these distractions, and uh, they're rather more beautiful space. Um, and you get to be here, and if you don't like it, maybe you can just go home. So now there's a sense of like not feeling welcome, and then, you know, compounding that is the fact that often what women hear in mosques from the sermons um, and even from other men and women uh, they might be sort of interacting with are just messages about sort of ideas about islam that they just don't agree with you know i i definitely have encountered being in the women's section and then being sort of chastised or lectured about one thing or other about whether sleeves should be all the way to your uh, to your wrist, and you know what, whether you should be wearing X, Y, Z, or how your child should be at, should be behaving or not behaving. Um, and so, I think a lot of women get tired of just feeling unwelcome and lectured, and then the representation of what of the issues that they care about is problematic to them as well. Um, ultimately, leading to the unmos phenomenon, where you see just a lot of young American Muslims not interested in going to the mosque at all.
2: So, uh, how do we combat that? Um,
1: how do we um...
2: How do we like make sure that our young people are more involved in the Muslim? Like, How do we get them in, in positions of leadership? Young people, women who are tired of, of the side entrance, who feel like they're not welcome in these spaces. Um, how do we get them to be in positions of leadership? And then how do we make sure that once they are in positions of leadership, they're helping their own personal communities, right? So it's not, it's one thing to be in leadership, but if those women are not doing anything to help 52% of the population, then that's not useful to, to us. Um, what are some of the changes that we can do to kind of make that happen?
1: So one of the things, I mean, so online, which is a space that I obviously live on, or live in um, quite a bit because of Muslim, the big conversation that kind of merged with the uh, hijab and mihrab, that's uh, one of the hashtags. Um, it, was, it was started after the founding of the, the women's mosque um, in, in LA. Um, another conversation or another hashtag was no all-male panels. Mm-hmm. And it was this idea that at Islamic events, time and again, all the panels, except the ones maybe dealing with women's issues, because sometimes the women's issues panels are also all-male, um, <laughs> were you know, completely like excluding of women and and again, of women's voices and perspectives. And this is something that we see in the mosque as well. Um, And so a first step is to create those opportunities where we actually hear from women, what their concerns are Um, to have a conversation like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, to be, to create that space and to even to allow them to have a public forum in which they can actually engage critically with the community. and so that's a starting point, point. and I think a lot of the women, you know, not all women, but a lot of young women already, they're, they, they see the issues that they've, uh, there's a, a tremendous number of young activist women who've come up with really viable solutions, um, and giving them the platform not only gives them a space to, to be able to speak, but to also begin to provide solutions to some of the issues that they see because they experience it. Um, So, Asma is the mom of a nine-week-old, and she's joined
2: us, which I think is amazing. So, she's out here doing great work. She's supposed to be on maternity leave. This is what her maternity leave looks like, Um, coming here to Houston and talking to us. Um, You're a new parent. You have young children. Um, I can't imagine it being easy raising Muslim children in today's environment, because I know I am confronted with this, and I know you are as well, What we're seeing is a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. We're seeing uh, bullying of children in the public schools. It's on the rise. Um, uh, We just had an attack in Manchester that was perpetrated (laughs) by people who claim to be of our faith. And we're trying to raise children who feel safe, who feel proud of their faith. And it's hard sometimes. can you speak to us a little bit about how do we raise strong Muslim children, strong Muslim women in today's age when, when the president during his campaign talked about sexually assaulting someone, and apparently the country was okay with that, it didn't matter. So how do we do that when we're seeing these competing images of Muslims in the media, and then we're seeing misogyny other places? Um, and we're trying to raise strong children.
1: So it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned Manchester, and you also mentioned bullying. Um, so I actually wrote a piece that was published in mm-hmm. Teen Vogue um, yesterday. I think I've reached a new level of cool with that. Um, <laughs> and I was doing some research from various sort of nonprofits in the um, UK that actually track anti-Muslim hate crimes. And one of the things that was really surprising that I found that I wrote about in this, in this piece is the fact that the main, so largest uh, proportion of perpetrators of anti-Muslim hate crime are actually youth between the ages of 13 and 18. So the question of youth and how they connect to the modern era is um, complicated on both sides of this. And in terms of like how to help create a sort of stable um, spiritual upbringing for our children in the Trump era, um, I think is something that different parents have different approaches to. Uh, I wrote a, a piece in the Washington Post that, kind of, that helped, uh, that sort of compiled different approaches that people were taking. And I, I surveyed you know, parents living you know, with different age children um, coast to coast. And some of the responses were, we tell them what's going on. It's better because if we, if we don't talk to them about it, They're going to hear about it and be taunted, most likely, by their classmates and their and and um, their peers. And so, it's better that if they're going to confront this issue, that they that they first deal with it in terms of a critical interaction with their own parents. Others were a little bit less willing to 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 deal with it. It's usually people like me who whose children are younger. And when I am sitting, you know, watching if I'm watching CNN and the latest terrorist attack is being you know, talked about with video footage or if there's Trump on there talking about how Islam hates us um, or any number of issues, if my daughter walks into the room, I'm going, I'm, I am going, turn it off um, because immediately it's just like you see the word Muslim in Islam written there in headlines. She knows it has something to do with her faith and her faith community and the questions are going to start. And at some point, I am going to engage in that conversation with her. But right now, I'm just trying so hard to create a childhood for her that as long as the outside world isn't imposing it on her, and so far she's got. I mean, I live in Maryland, which is a completely blue state. Um, the day after the election, you know, my daughter announced that she was organizing a protest at school. So it was. It just, <laughs> and so I'm safe. I'm for the t- for the time being, I'm safe. Um, but for me, I'm just trying to, you know, and it's 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 a thing that we don't have. Young American Muslim parents don't have a model for because. Yeah, I mean, when I, was, when I was growing up, I was still that complicated person in college who was asking all these questions and having major spiritual crises. But when I was younger, I didn't have to deal with this, you know, constantly. And my parents didn't lay out a blueprint for me as to how to talk to your children about terrorism and anti-Muslim hate. Um, and so we're kind of forging it on our own. And what I loved about my childhood and what I think gave me a firm grounding, and again, it kind of goes back to that warm and fuzzy Islam, and I think that's probably an essential first step before you get to the complicated version, um, is to create that warm and fuzzy Islam for them. The one where we talk about heaven and we talk about angels sitting on your shoulders, right? Scribbling down about everything good and bad that you do. Something that's magical um, and, and just kind of keep them in that space for as long as I can. And then, one, and then that gives them the solid foundation that I hope will then be able to give them a standard from which to create that distinction, right? That, that crazy man that, that they're talking about on the TV who did X, Y, Z horrific thing in the name of Islam, that is distinctly different from what Islam and Muslims are, and I know that because I have a solid foundation. And that's what I want my children to be able to, to do.
2: Um, do you think it's different for, for kids in high school or older? Because you have young children. Um, I, have, I have kids that are in high school, and their their reality is a little bit different. They have to confront this every day. Um, I know when my daughter, you know, after after kind of this political upheaval or this political moment happened, has really struggled with it. Um, do you find that there's something that there has to be some structure or something to give these these kids so that they can work some of these feelings out? Because our experience, your and my experience, was very different. I grew up here too, I went to school here, but I think it's a different time now and it's a different way of growing up. Um, <coughs> is it different for, for raising
1: kids that are a little bit older or, you know? So I'm gonna turn that question back to you because I think you're in a better position to sort of think through it, but I think it ties back to our conversation about the unmasked phenomenon and right. the community aspect of it. I mean, there's yeah, there's like, there's like a whole sort of... Um, there's so many reasons that we have to solve the Unmas phenomenon or, or, and, and to start creating both traditional and, and continue to cultivate these alternative communities because that's absolutely the space that, that kids are going to need. Kids and adults. I mean, all of us are, continue to deal with sort of internal struggles and a lot of confusion in the modern landscape um, and the need for those spaces where we can just ask questions and think through these issues critically without being labeled as somehow a weaker Muslim because we have questions. Um, and also be able to interact with a wide variety of professionals, both male and female, um, who have solutions, who work in these various spaces, both in terms of you know, religious law and theology, but also politics and policy and law, and to be able to draw from all these different expertise and, and experiences. Um, I think is critical in terms of our community being able to, to heal our wounds and, and to figure out new solutions and move forward. Um,
2: I was just going to say that I think with our with our young people, I think it's really important that we provide them with exactly what you're saying, some place for them to talk about this stuff. Because they're talking about things about um, like gender equality, sexuality, fluidity in sexuality, all of these topics that... I didn't even know existed when I was I was young, and I think we do a disservice to them when they don't have um, a role model or some kind of structure in place where they can talk about those those things. And I, and
1: I would say it goes both ways in this conversation. I think often there's um, because of the sort of traditional rooting of Islam, there's a, a huge push in terms of you know in terms of pushing the envelope and broadening our scope of conversation tends to happen so that well it's okay to to think in terms of you know like really kind of pushing the, the civil rights aspect or pushing sort of liberal interpretations of Islam. But I think it has to be both. It has to be, if you're, if the traditional interpretations of Islam also have to be accepted, there have to be certain, some sort of negotiation, not some sort of agenda in terms of like, where we want um, our youth and ourselves to land. Um,
2: all right, well, thank you so much, Asma. Uh, I think we're gonna open it up for um, questions now. And uh, we'll have you, sir, do the first question. I think we have a mic somewhere. Just one second. I think we have a mic coming up.
3: My name is Aziz. And I have a question, and that is, uh, did you ever get a chance in your life to compare whether Judaism or Christianity treat women better than Islam does, or worse, or same level?
1: So I haven't. And by the
3: way, after that, I want to ask another quick question, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
1: So I haven't done any sort of like academic comparison in terms of like what the the, the various scriptures and the and the law says. Um, you know, and I think that's very different from how the various religions are being interpreted currently. Um, but one thing that I that I did do, and so it kind of ties back to the fact that I worked at a, a nonprofit law firm dealing with religious liberty of people of all religions and all versions of the religions. So both conservative, for instance, conservative Christians as well, and conservative Jews as well. Um, and what I, one thing, there's a couple of different things there. A is the fact that when I started Alt Muslimad, I got a lot of letters and emails from people from other faith communities telling me, you know, that issue you talked about, that exact same issue happens in the exact same way in our community. Um, And this was the full range of issues of like Muslim women having a hard time finding suitable, um, you know, marriage partners, um, the situation, like the the no all males panel is something that's definitely, um, you know, struck a chord (laughs) with people in all faith, like a lot of women from different. In the Christian and Jewish communities, um, so I was getting a lot of that. So I definitely don't think this is unique to Islam or to to the Muslim community. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I did with that is I actually helped start a couple of other websites. Um, one of them is actually called Alt Fem, an alternative feminism. We were talking about feminism. Well, we're going to recapture feminism and make it something that actually speaks, you know, and tells our stories. Um, and that that site actually has, you know, Jewish and Christian you know, we have like Mormon and Sikh and different, and different um, women of different faiths speaking on there. Um, and so I can, just, I can speak to that and I can also just say that in the context of my litigation and dealing with various cases like Hobby Lobby that was kind of really enmeshed in the culture wars. And for those of you who don't know what Hobby Lobby is, it's the case that, uh, and again you're going to hate me, but it's the, the case that you know, we won 5-4 at the US Supreme Court where a for-profit um, company was allowed the basis of it, its family owned, uh, the basis of its religious beliefs to um, not provide free of charge uh, to abortifacients. So it was like the Plan B and Ella um, drugs under, which was required under the Obamacare. Um, and so it was, the, the claim was that this violates our religious beliefs because according to their fundamentalists sort or of Protestant interpretations that you know, we are against abortion and we cannot facilitate the use of these abortifacients by our employees. It's, they're free to use them, but we can't facilitate it by having to pay for it. Um, and so in the context of that, there was this culture war, obviously the issue that, that, that sort of got caught up with this. Um, and I'm not gonna deny that there aren't some religious liberty advocates out there who are in it for the politics? Um, but I definitely, and the firm that I worked at definitely wasn't. Um, but you know, it was like me walking out after oral arguments on the front steps of the U.S. Supreme Court, and you know, being afraid that I was going to get hit with tomatoes because there was a major protest happening right there in front. Um, and it was like, well, anybody who was defending Hobby Lobby is necessarily anti-women. Um, and then there was the nonprofit cases where we dealt with nuns you know, who wanted to, like this, different orders of nuns who also didn't want to be forced to provide contraception against their religious beliefs. And so again, it was like, well, you have these nuns, you know, who are women, and they think that this is a practice that absolutely conforms to, you know, women and women's rights and empowerment, and they have no problem with that, and yet other women out there in the protest are accusing them of being anti-women. So this also goes to the question of how certain religious beliefs, even in, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism are considered to be anti-women, um, and there's like this push within sectors in their, that community itself um, that are kind of really pushing for a reinterpretation um, on those issues.
3: Okay. Uh, somewhere in our discussion there was a, matter, uh, a mention of hijab. I got a chance to study and read Quran many times in detail, and nowhere I have read that word hijab or you, you practice the job and use it only one time in whole Quran. Only one time there is a mention of the word. How how will you spell, translate "parda" in English? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, it says that you should uh, the ladies should uh, dress modestly. Okay, and maybe <coughs> only put a little uh, piece piece of cloth here or whatever that is only for young women, not married one, okay. And so my question is, by practicing hijab here, are we putting unnecessary burden on us? Is it really required? So one thing- I'm sorry, thank okay. you for taking my question. Oh, no,
1: it's okay. okay. <laughs> so one thing we're very clear about at Muslima is that we're not issuing any sort of legal Judgments, or you know, we're not issuing fatwas or giving you answers to your to your religious questions. I mean, those sites exist, um, and encourage you to use them. But of course, we we do you know engage in the conversation of hijab a lot in different in, in other different ways. And so in terms of whether or not it specifically mentioned the Qur'an, I mean, the counter argument to that is the fact that that was already, when it was speaking to the women in terms of covering their chest, they were already had their head covered. And so that's why it wasn't something that they had to be mentioned uh, explicitly. Um, but, you know, so the, one of the most compelling sort of pieces that we've run on the site, uh, on this issue, is actually a four-part series of uh, interviews that we did with Dr. Amr Abdullah. And I don't know if how many people here are familiar with him, but he's just this incredible scholar was based in Chicago and was somebody that I studied with when I was going to law school in Chicago. And he was actually so pivotal in terms of my own spiritual growth. Um, and so, and you know, he gets into that. He gets into, for instance, like the original purpose of, of the hijab and the, and the context in which those, those verses were revealed. Um, And ultimately the fact that, you know, it was a situation where the Prophet was engaged, you know, he had a one-room house and his wives were sitting there when he used to receive these male visitors and he felt that the women's privacy was being invaded and so there there was a verse that that related to the curtain that separated um, his wives from the view of these male visitors. But ultimately what he says is that there's, you know, ultimately what hijab is about, and, and the concept of hijab is very different from headscarves. And so this interview is actually called On Hijabs and Headscarves, because he wants to make this distinction that hijab is so much more than headscarves. And it's about the, the, the sort of sacredness of the private space and of privacy. Um, and I think that, that you know, there, there needs to be a broader sort of understanding and engagement of the concept um, instead of being sort of limited and simplistic in the way that we deal with. The other thing he talked about, and this was published, you know, when I first launched in 2009, and the situation is, I would say, much worse now, uh, with the constant sort of onslaught of terrorist attacks and the rise in hate crime, anti-Muslim hate crime, specifically gendered hate crime that happens that where women in religious garb are routinely attacked, is the fact that, you know, if, if there are certain contexts in which it ceases to be obligatory. I mean, there is nothing more important than your security in your life, um, and ultimately if that's in danger because of your headscarf or you're essentially wearing religion on your sleeve, then it's permissible in those circumstances. A number of scholars actually in recent um, years have said that, that it's permissible in those situations to so not have to wear it. So, but what the main thing happening is that I think the broader political landscape is for forcing us to have a more sort of nuanced, complicated, complex conversation on the question of headscarves. Rather than, or the question of hijab, rather than just sort of relegating it to the simple idea that you can wear a headscarf and you know fulfill that obligation, or that it's as you know it's required in all circumstances. You give just the name of that scholar
4: you sorry, just
1: one second. I'm sorry. What was the question? I'm sorry, I, just, I didn't get the name of this scholar. What was his name? So first name is uh, Omar U M A R. Uh, last name is Abdullah, so It's A B D dash. Allah, A-L-L-A-H. He's actually um, a, wa- a white Caucasian convert to Islam, um, inspired to convert to Islam on the, on the basis of the, the story of Malcolm X. Um, and he's a, he essentially qualifies as a genius because he speaks like a ton of languages. Um, and just his work on Islamic law. I and mean, he was actually, he was the person I mentioned in my essay as well. Um, his, his work on Islamic law and sort of like this focus on the fact that so much of Islam is gray. We force it to be black and white, but in fact most of it is gray. And that grayness is such a source of, of comfort um, for a lot of us. All right, so what we're going to do is we have
2: um, two people wandering, uh, two, yeah, two people with the mic, and so we have one person with the question, and then I'll start pointing and if you can just get the mic to them. All
5: right, thank you. Can we get a question, please? Uh, yes. as Alaikum. Wa uh, Well, I just want to ask you two sisters, uh, did you ever present this type of issues in your masjid? Uh, because, well, uh, I go to the Islam in Spanish. That's what the masjid I attend to. And before Islam in Spanish, uh, I assisted at the masjid with my husband. And uh, we used the same entrance. Uh, we don't have a trash can on our way, so I want everybody to know that not all the masjids are like that. And I, and I, I hear what you're saying, and I understand uh, the, those issues, but I do uh, ask myself, did you have this type of conversations in the masjid? Did you gather the sisters and maybe say, hey, look, we're going to have to do something about this. We haven't. Uh, the sisters and where we, I attend, we don't have those issues, and we are very much involved in what's going on in
2: our markets. Mm-hmm. Can, can I add? ask for ethnic like,
1: like the ethnic background? So what's the ethnic background? That's the question.
2: Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about Islam in Spanish and a little bit about your ethnic background? The lady who asked the question.
5: you want to know, excuse me, what is
2: Islam in Spanish? Yeah, just a little, just a really quick, just recap. Okay. Because she's uh, not familiar with Houston. Oh,
5: okay. Islam in Spanish is the masjid where most of the people that go there are from Spanish backgrounds. Uh, we have a cook bath, half in Spanish and half in English. It's nothing different other than, you know, we are, uh, we're just uh, mainly from Spanish countries. I'm from Panama and most of the people there are, they come from Mexico, well, El Salvador, well, many different Spanish countries and that's all it is to it. And the other uh, masses that I assist to is our uh, masjid with the black American brothers and sisters that, you know, if you haven't been in one of them, there are so many in the city, uh, we can tell you where and uh, it's, it's, it's different than what right. you are saying here.
2: I mean, so, so like a lot of American cities in Houston, we have a lot of different cultures, and a lot of different Muslim cultures. So, um, so there's the traditional mosque, yes. and then there's Islam and Spanish, which has been very open and welcoming, and then we have a lot of African American mosques, and I think it's the mm-hmm. same much around the country.
1: Right. I mean, the reason I asked is because when that, that is a response that we've gotten to are the conversations on the site, uh, and specifically from women from the African American mosque saying, well, That's actually not an issue in our mosque. Like, you know, women are just so much more forceful, and sort of like their role and their assertiveness is sort of like a given in those contexts. I think he wants to say.
2: Um, Okay, so so we'll we'll have one question over here then. But I mean, just to to
1: recap, just to sort of just one second. Yeah. um, So it is. I I should say it is a problem that I think is more sort of acute in the South Asian and Arab context, and I think it might also come from the fact that a lot of you know, like I mentioned earlier, in Pakistan there isn't even. You know, a women's section in a mosque. And so it's like a context of which pe- from which certain immigrants are coming where they can't, haven't really been able to, or haven't, uh, ha- haven't ever sort of grappled with the issue. Um, and this is the way it's being implemented here now. We have break down the wall discussions all the time. That's
2: something that we have all the time, because it's like you sit behind a wall, and it's like, just break it down. What can we do? <laughs> Take a pixel, you know? Um, all right, next question right over here.
6: Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here today. After your questions, if you indulge me, uh, the first one is you probably you and I would probably agree that Islam has a a very rich intellectual history. Uh, and so my question is, do you think that the issue of women equality and uh, what we know today as feminist values uh, have been discussed in the past in our tradition? Um, and does that matter anyway? Is that the, the idea of looking back into the tradition to see what the tradition says about such such uh, issues? is of concern to today living in modern day or in, in, in Western societies. That's question number one. Question number two, uh, in your view, how should we as Muslims reconcile between clear verses in the Quran that appear to not equate between women and men such as inheritance? Thank you.
2: what was the second question? Can you repeat the second question, please? Sure.
6: In your view, how should we as Muslims reconcile between clear verses in the Quran that appear to not equate between women and men, such as inheritance?
1: Okay. So, I mean, you referred to feminist values as they're understood today, but you didn't really specify like, what those values are, you know, because I think that's like something that's in flux, right? And something that a lot of us continue to question and contest, right? What are feminist values? Which are the ones that we want to embrace? And which ones do we think are authentic to our faith, right? So, there might be certain values that are widely thought of as feminist, but something that religious women, by and large, um, or traditionally religious women might not be interested in adopting, but that doesn't mean that they're not feminist. So first I just wanna complicate that question about what constitutes a feminist value. Um, and then the question of like, whether we should look to tradition um, and whether it's relevant, I mean, I think absolutely. And I, so when I was talking about the site that I started and the context from which it arose, which was um, not just these emails I was getting, but also the fact that I, I worked on a lot of really conservative Christian and Jewish issues and worked with these women and these and the, these communities, and saw that these people absolutely found in their tradition and in their very traditional interpretation a source of empowerment for themselves and a full realization of who they were as women. And so I think that tradition absolutely is relevant. Um, and and you know I actually I would say among the options I would definitely lean I lean conservative, and I and I think that you know tradition is a source of tremendous insight. Um, and so I would say, yes, it is relevant. And I think that ties into, and I think also there's, there's a lot of pivoting that happens in our community when people bring up this question of women's rights in Islam and there's like this automatic response about like 1400 years ago, you know, Islam gave X, Y, Z right. And therefore it absolutely is, you know, a religion about women's rights. And, and then the conversation just ends there as if, you know, what happened back then is enough and it's not something that, can, that needs to continue to grow. Um, so I think the tradition inspires us, it tells us that, you know, Islam in its time when it, in, in it's, in its uh, uh, when it first revealed, was revolutionary. And I think that revolutionary spirit needs to continue to sort of guide us in our modern day as well. Um, and the question of the clear verses in the Qur'an, um, I think that, you know, I made a distinction earlier between the verses related to women and men's equal dignity and worth, as it's sort of reflected um, in terms of our rights to equal education and the, and, and the worth of our, of our worship. Uh, but then there's a whole other series of verses for instance inheritance verses, um or the you know the question of testimony the um in in related to economic transactions uh in court for instance um and so on but they're very much tied to particular i mean this is what i'm not it's not these aren't my theories this is me reading and telling you what scholars working on this have said is that um those are very much tied to the very specific socioeconomic circumstances a time when women weren't as, as involved in economic transactions and so it may not be able to explain it as, be, as, be, you know, as good as a, a man, but that time has changed. And so there's, there's space here for the, in terms of the verses that are tied to those particular conditions, there's, there's space there to be, for them to be engaged with differently.
2: All right, we had one question right here with this gentleman. No, th- Yeah, most of all. All right, thank you, next.
4: <laughs> Am I taking a woman's turn or something? <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I, I have a statement and a question. Uh, first of all, there are actually issues in the masjid. So we acknowledge that. I mean, I complain about it myself all the time. Uh, in various masjids, you'll find this second class or third class status where the women are locked in some place can't hear, can't see, can't do anything, et cetera. In some places, the the the, the cases are so extreme that it's dangerous uh, because if somebody came in there and was gonna do something, they could do it and nobody would even know. That's just how it is. Now, having said that, one of the other issues that I have with the Muslim community is that although we're very diverse, we have not learned to leverage the diversity in the community. And I heard you speak about how to raise kids and these types of things. Well some of these issues have been have been there are models for that. There are models of there are masjids uh, and we have our own issues about which masjid we go to uh, namely African-American masjids versus other masjids, etc. That we have converts who are having robust discussions in the masjids have women who are on boards in masjids, and I mean a lot of boards uh, and if you, in our organization, from top to bottom, we have women that leading the organization, et cetera. But those things never get told. And I don't, <laughs> I don't want people to leave thinking, uh, uh, number one, we, I'm not trying to clean nothing up because we do have issues. Uh, we have domestic violence, we got kids on drugs, we got people getting pregnant, etc. cetera. We got all the same issues everybody else has. But. One of, the, one of the downfalls that we, we, we tend to fail at is that we're not dealing with that holistically. And so one of the issues that I see is that, you know, we've been doing this work in the streets here uh, since I've been a Muslim, and I've been a Muslim now since I was 19 years old. All right, I got four sons, I got four grandkids, I got a great-granddaughter, et cetera. So, I mean, you know, we need to leverage our diversity. That is not what we're doing. And we, you know, Dr. issan Bagby, I don't know if you read his piece about women-friendly mosques. Mm-hmm. He wrote a piece, uh, it's been at least, I'm thinking three or four years old now. But he has a a, a, a booklet that says women-friendly mosques, and he was talking about that very issue. Uh, and as far as the hijab goes, I think we're making a, I mean, we have an issue. I'll agree to that. But we don't have the same issue when we talk about if the nun wear her habit in public, ain't nobody saying nothing about it. You know, Muslim women walk around with hair, a hijab, everybody got an issue with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if we're truly a free society, then if the woman choose to wear hijab, then we should leave it alone. If she choose to cover her face, that's her business. If she chooses, it's not my business to tell her. All right, but I think that we need to understand that we live in a very diverse community, and one of the problems that we have on programs like this is people The stereotype the entire Muslim community based on these problems. And one of the reasons we don't deal with it or don't say anything is because we're constantly trying to combat the stereotypes that people have about Muslims. And that's one of the things that, and I think this program is absolutely necessary. I'm not trying to put the program down, but I'm saying that the stereotypes are so strong. Now look, let me say this too. I grew up watching people getting lynched. I grew up watching the civil rights movement you have the kids cannot be protected from it you have to show it to them it makes that's them right. stronger but you have to be strong too all right
2: thank you all right
1: thank yeah you. i mean i just Sorry want to say that, I, that yeah. so i just want to say i agree with all of the above and i think that's a really good point in terms of the specific model that you just identified um, because i went, when i was speaking about a lack of models i was specifically talking about explaining Islam in the age of like terrorism, a constant sort of terror, you know, um, a world is wracked by terrorism. And that that was the specific issue that I don't see a model for, but I agree that maybe broadening the lens a little bit and looking at these other types of probably terrorism and violence um, is a good way to sort of begin to identify those models. Um, And diversity, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that was kind of what we were talking about in terms of the know all male panels. It starts, I mean, that's very, that's talking about including women, but then it goes beyond that to There's a much wider scope of diversity of voices that need to be heard um, instead of just men from a very particular community. Yeah, and I think in terms of the question of, like, the nun's habit and the hijab, the specific question that was raised was was more about the intra-community conversation. And one thing that, you know, when we first started Alt-Muslim, a lot of people were submitting pieces, and they're really heartfelt and emotional pieces by women who just felt constantly judged by the community, Um, just felt that their level of religiosity was constantly being measured in terms of the way they dressed. Um, And so that's much more of an intra-community issue as opposed to something, you know, where it's like the people outside the community judging Muslims uh, on the basis of their dress and, and the contradictions that are there. Um, and finally, I mean, just in terms of the question of like, okay, well, this, you know, forums like this where we talk about stereotypes, well, I mean, one other th- thing that, you know, that I've dealt with and that, you know, for instance, Hind who, who did side entrance um, dealt with is that this sort of, this concern always by members of the community that don't talk about these issues because, you know, you can't air our dirty laundry. You have to sort of put on a face. And I think in some ways you're kind of getting to that too, that we're trying to put on, you know, that maybe the community is trying to put on a certain face that everything is great and we have all of our issues figured out. But I think Alt-Muslima directly sort of tries to to, to complicate that and say, well, look, we have all these complicated issues. Everything isn't great. A lot of us are suffering from deep spiritual crises. But guess what? We're still very much tied to Islam and we don't fault Islam. um, And we think the solutions still lie in that tradition.
2: All right, I think there's one question here in the front row. You yeah, just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> just one second, there's a mic coming. I can talk without
6: the mic. Okay.
7: <laughs> well, uh, my name is Malik Hasami, and I belong to the Southwest Mosque called Dallas or Sabrine Mosque. And I was an interim director on that mosque for six months. Believe me, the cultural baggage that people bring into the mosque, seeing a woman as a director, as an interim director, hurt them so much that I had the worst six months of my life as an interim director in that mosque. Because they refused to say greetings of salaam to me, they turned their heads away. So what I'm saying is people are coming with a lot of cultural baggage from the countries they come, and they refuse to give up those baggages. Mm-hmm. I had the worst time, even sitting on the Shora in the SGH for the six months, deliberating with all the men in the nine to 12 body community, and I just persisted all throughout. But even to this day, I'm hurt very deeply. As to the issue of you saying different mosques and entrances by, garb- by the garbage, and that is not true. That used to be when I was in the 70s in New York and New Jersey, we had small mosques. But it's not prevalent now. We have beautiful mosques with beautiful designs, very special entrances everywhere. So what is your comment about how to you know, undo the cultural baggage that people come with?
1: Well, so first on the issue of like what mosques look like, I think they're still... I think maybe it's great maybe if in Houston there's like amazing mosques with um, you know amazing women sections but I can definitely say that you know I come from the DMV area the DC Maryland Virginia area and I don't think that holds true across the board Um, and definitely I mean I grew up in Miami and I can tell you that you know I don't think it's true across the board I think there were pockets especially in bigger cities and where there's more activism where we're beginning to see the change I also have to say that since I started the website in 2009 a lot of the issues that we talked about then you know, maybe it's taking too much credit, but I think that there were certain conversations that were made okay um, by the existence of the conversation that was happening in Al-Muslimah. You know, like I didn't really see a conversation on women's spaces um, until we started talking about it there. And the next thing you know, I'm on a stage with like Imam Sohib Webb at MPAC, you know, and I'm just like, wow, I never went to a convention where we had this conversation until now. Um, And so I think that there's definitely been change um, in the past, you know, decade or less than decade. Um, And so I agree with that, there's progress. Um, but I wouldn't say that all the problems could be sort of like rooted back in the 70s because I was born well after that and I've seen plenty of it. Um, And then in terms of like, you know, people bringing cultural baggage, I mean, absolutely, that was one of the the points that, you know, that I made and I think it's one of the reasons why we see this difference between immigrant mosques and the African-American mosques, for instance, um, because the immigrant mosques are the South Asians that are coming from their countries with certain assumptions. Um, And I think, you know, aside from the diversity um, of voices that we've been really emphasizing here today, I think uh, sort of another obvious solution to that is just the fact there's going to be generational change, right? And, you know, we hear constantly this idea of cultivating an authentically American Islam, and I think that we're, we're getting there. And that's one of the reasons why we see the change, because there's this new generation of American Muslims who are fully American and fully Muslim, and they're changing things. And one, and one day they'll be the ones leading these, these mosques. So we have time for, I think, one more question. And
2: I think um, she had her hand up. I'm sorry if I missed some, all of them. We just can't get to everyone. We have, we have to end soon.
1: Um, so this kind of goes off of um, the comment that this woman made in the front. Getting to a point where you can go into a masjid and suggest something to an elder and they don't respond with defensiveness is almost impossible. So I'm trying to think, cause I was talking to my friend Aisha here too, we are trying to think of like a way for us to even get a space to talk where we're not instinctively met with this kind of vitriol, like, oh no, our masjid is not like this. I think that's one of the problems we have culturally as Muslims and especially as South Asians, we don't ever want to think we do anything wrong. So what I'm asking is how do we find ways to be radical and be progressive and kind of get away from just facing this defensiveness and look into ourselves and introduce the adults in our community to the same thing? I mean, I think creating these alternative, third sp- these third spaces and the online community, for instance, is an essential step to that. Um, you have to start c- find your voice and, and, and organize um, outside that traditional restricted space, in order to then be able to penetrate those walls. And there's actually a piece that we published on Al-Muslima where it was written by a woman who actually talked about the process that she went through, and she kind of traced it from one Ramadan to the next one. So it was like a full year of her trying really hard just to get female voices, um, you know, more prominently heard at the mosque. Um, and it was amazing because she just, you know, the, she received friendly, and she describes her mosque as one that's relatively more sort of like open to these ideas, as opposed to immediately shutting them down. And she she was like, she kept hearing like excuse after excuse, you know, like, first we need, you know, we don't know where to find them. And then she introduced, so there's a young woman named Zara Billow from Care, who works for Care in California. And she compiled this huge spreadsheet of Muslim women speakers and their expertise. So the first concern was, well, we don't really know where to find these, um, these women. She handed them the spreadsheet well, we're looking for somebody who doesn't have like, who doesn't have like, we're not really looking for Western academic credentials. We're looking for like traditional Islamic seminary um, credentials. She provided those. You know, it was like one thing after the other, that the excuses and the reasoning that, you know, that she heard until finally she said, you know, maybe I just need to step away from this and continue to cultivate this third space. So not to be super pessimistic, (laughs) um, but I think that, you know, make those efforts and have those conversations. And then to the extent that you feel you're being turned away, just realize that there are alternative spaces where you can have the conversation. Um, I mean, the way that Alt-Muslima started it actually started, you know, as, as a discussion group of, you know, at the time I lived in Philadelphia and it was women from the tri-state area from New, Jer- New York, New Jersey and Philadelphia that met once a month and consistently grew um, until I decided to take it online. And so, and then after I took it online, I got emails saying, well, we actually, print articles from Al-Muslimah and have discussion groups discussing that article. And so there's the women who are doing these sort of grassroots initiatives, um, who are beginning, I guess you can say, call, you know, developing the resistance. Um, and then of course there's initiatives like the one in California where there's women-only mosques, which there was a lot of criticism of that too, That that doesn't solve the problem. You have to work within the, con- the co-ed framework and solve the real issues there as opposed to sort of creating an alternative. Um, but you know there's the spaces like that also give space for women to kind of like find their voice develop solutions, and then to be able to take the solutions and implement them in more complicated contexts um,
2: The only thing I would say is i 've um, been involved in the traditional mosque system, and I think it's important that those voices do stay in there too because if we 're not there then we 've given up that space and that 's our space that's your space that 's everyone's space and um, And and it's hard, it's difficult, and you will have experiences where you feel like it's not even worth it. But just you being at the table, you being there, your presence there is important. And you're pushing boundaries. And it might be slow, but you're still doing it. And those voices are important. And we can't let those other voices drown us out because those moths are all of ours. So I think with that, we're gonna end the program. I think David's gonna come up and say a few words. Thank you, Esma.
0: Thank you all very much for um, being part of this series. Um, I think you uh, brought to us the depth of query, uh, the depth of, of wrestling with the angels to some extent, uh, the, uh, that search for meaning, which is what this place is all about, is being this place where people can come from whatever travails, joys, hopes, aspirations uh, to come and really search that which is meaningful in the deepest sense so I think you both brought that to us tonight so thank you for that I also thank you for the uh, universality of some of the things you brought I didn't know Muslims went mosque shopping We ch- Christians go church shopping or synagogue shopping and um, I, we laugh about it but it is something again we share in common in a way Uh, I I was fortunate to be raised in a family, and I have a spouse who's very feminist, so this idea of all-male panels, by golly, Presbyterians do that too. Democrats do that. Republicans do. Well, we got to be careful. Thanks for that. So there's a lot of universals you shared, but I'm also just really struck by the fact that I think, as American Muslims, you carry a burden that a lot of us don't have to carry. Uh, I remember after 9-11, I, we were living in Portland, Oregon, and it was amazing how many non-Muslim women put on, maybe it's a scarf, in that sense, to just be with Muslim women with the hijab, just to say, we are part of this, we're, we're together. Um, and I think that these are those moments of building that sense of connection to one another, um, and and doing the little we can to step into somebody else's shoes, you can't really do that, but to hear, but it's a, it's a burden, we're, we're parents of three children, and, and how do you raise children uh, in this context? Is, it's complicated, and uh, how do you keep that values? And, and, and I think how do you reform, because that's a big thing, do you stay within, do you stay without, or do you create these third spaces? And a lot of people are asking those questions today, and these are, as you well know, they're very serious questions, because they're about identity, they're about legacy, they're about uh, trust, they're about conviction. So to do that, thank you, and to, to bring it to us and to give us some food for thought. So thank you all. I, I also really appreciate having um, uh, Maheen and Brittany with us tonight, our, uh, the interpreters. So thank you all for, for being here at the chapel. Um, please look at your programs. The season is just starting. We have a lot of family-friendly things this, this summer on the plaza, taiko drumming to bands to dancing, uh, family-friendly meditations we'll be doing this summer. So I hope you'll find a, a way back here and uh, come enjoy some of the programming we have this summer before we launch our next season. So come and join us on the reception. I'd ask that you'd exit through the center aisles. And if you do that promptly, then we can get the conversation going outside. Thank you all very much.